to Matthew 8. We come this morning, Matthew chapter 8, where we'll be reading the first 17 verses. This is at page 813 in your, hymn, in your Bible, Pew Bible, if that's helpful to you. We've uh, just finished a rather lengthy series within a series, the series in the Sermon on the Mount within our series on the Gospel of Matthew. So this is a good opportunity, I think, for us to pause and to, to pull back for just a moment to see the bigger picture and to remind ourselves where we are in the flow of Matthew's gospel. It has already been, a, if you can believe this, a full year since we found ourselves together in chapter 4 of Matthew. Uh, when we came to Matthew's summary of the activity of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, verse 23, which reads, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Basically, teaching, preaching, and healing. Or, as I summarized it in the riveting sermon title in the bulletin that week nearly a year ago, Message and Miracle. So there now, you all remember it as if it were yesterday, right? Uh, so we might also summarize the ministry of Jesus as words and works. At that time, we heard that Jesus' teaching and his miracles, especially of healing, make up the account of our Lord's ministry that Matthew provides us, Jesus preached and Jesus healed. For much of the eventful past year, we've been treated by Matthew to a marvelous specimen of Jesus preaching and teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that spans chapters 5 through 7. And now beginning here in chapter 8 and continuing into chapter 9, Matthew will treat us to marvelous specimens of his miracles. You may already be aware of the fact that uh, healing miracles uh, are, are a very large part, feature very largely in Matthew. He uses the verb to heal more often than any other New Testament writer. Soon we will come, the Lord willing, to chapter 9, verse 35, to a statement almost identical to the one we read in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This repetition in Matthew's uh, gospel in, indicates to us that chapter 4, verse 23 through 9, verse 35 is a definite section begun and ended with summary statements and including within it material that illustrates and confirms the summaries that bookend this section. There is also, if you will allow it, uh, something else worth pointing out to you at this point, and that is this. Having completed now the Sermon on the Mount, we have completed the first of five discourses or, or teaching sections of our Lord's teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Now we're returning today with chapter 8 back to narrative, back to story, if you like. This is also, by the way, a pattern in Matthew that we will see, teaching discourses 
and narrative sections alternate back and forth throughout the whole gospel. The next discourse or teaching section we will come to when we get to chapter 10. For now, narrative. And narrative in particular are three miracles starting in chapter 8 after we pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit upon Matthew, former tax collector turned disciple of yours, to write these words and that you've preserved them to this very day. And for the work of the same Holy Spirit, we pray. Now a bit different, who inspired Matthew to write these words, now we pray that he will illumine us and our hearts to receive them. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that time very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
Well, if people were impressed with Jesus' teaching, and of course Matthew told us that they were at the end of the sermon, as we read last week, they were certainly impressed by the authority he displayed in healing the sick. The miracles made a deep impression on those who witnessed them, and especially on those who received them. They still do on us who will receive them as the truth that they are. Alas, some don't. They reject the miracles, the supernatural works of Jesus, the the wolves that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the wolves that make their way into pulpits dressed in sheep's clothing, especially over the past century and a quarter, century and a half or so, make a specialty of this, of denying the miraculous, the supernatural acts of Jesus' ministry. Nothing new about that, of course. People have been doing that for centuries. About a week and a half ago, Princeton University Press released a book entitled The Jefferson Bible, A Biography, written by Peter Manso. Manso is the Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. In his book, according to one of the editorial reviews, he tells the story of the reception of one of the most audacious and controversial projects ever undertaken by one of America's founders. Many of you know what that audacious project was. The redaction of the Gospels using, literally using a pen knife to cut out anything and everything that smacks of the supernatural from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cutting out the miracles. What was left after that, Jefferson combined into an 84-page manuscript he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. On the same day that Manso's book was released a week and a half ago, the Wall Street uh, Journal posted a book review written by Crawford Gribben, the uh, professor of history at Queen's University of Belfast, entitled The Jefferson Bible Review the Gospel Sands Miracles. Subtitled with the question, In excising the miracles from the Christian Gospels, did did Thomas Jefferson remove the very thing he needed most? Well, Gribben goes on cleverly to answer his own question with a both subtle and resounding yes. He points out that by including Jesus' ethical teaching, but omitting any reference to the supernatural, what Jefferson described as distinguishing diamonds from dunghills, the passage before us that we've read today being an example for Jefferson of the latter, Jefferson presented the Messiah less as Savior than as savant. Jefferson's Jesus, all morals 
and no miracles made Jesus politically useful. The idealized American man. But the project, he goes on to write, is a failure because Jefferson's Jesus, as he points out, is forever on the brink of doing something extraordinary, but never does. Or to quote from Manso's book, Jefferson's Jesus stories are all set up with no payoff. Time and time again, Jesus indicates that he might be able to perform a miracle of some kind, and then he does nothing. While this no doubt made him more acceptable in enlightenment circles, one imagines it would have made Jesus far less popular in Galilee. Yes, far less popular and far less Jesus. Jesus' very name, as you know, means Savior. And to be Savior, Jesus must be capable of saving. A Jesus who is a great teacher, a moral example, a wise man, and friendly, a great uh, example, but impotent, lacking in power, is a useless Jesus. He is no more helpful than any other, even if remarkable, but in the end, hapless human being headed for destruction. Matthew means to include the miracles here. Here in this gospel is found yet but a tiny sampling of the thousands, yea, the tens of thousands of miracles performed by Jesus during his three-year ministry. He records them because we must have them. We must have them. Surely C.S. Lewis was right to warn us. Do not attempt to water Christianity down. There must be no pretense that you can have it with the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must frankly argue for supernaturalism from the very outset. All the essentials of Hinduism would, I think, remain unimpaired if you subtracted the miraculous. And, and the same is almost true of Islam. But you cannot do that with Christianity. It is precisely the story of a great miracle. A naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. We agree with C.S. Lewis. Matthew and the other gospel writers give us the miracles as essential to the revelation of Jesus as Savior of the world. They're essential for us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, or as the theologians like to put it, the person and work of Jesus. The miracles show us what we must look, that we must look to Jesus and only to Jesus Christ and no one else for salvation, for eternal life. That was the point uh, that J. Gresham Machen made in his great work, Christianity and Liberalism, his attack on the so-called Christianity of his day that, that sought to preserve something useful from the Bible 
and the Christian faith without requiring to believe that Jesus actually did you know, miracles or, uh, or the miracles certainly that were attributed to him by the New Testament. Machen writes, the New Testament without the miracles would be far easier to believe, but the trouble is it would not be worth believing. Without the miracles, the New Testament would contain an account of a holy man. But of what benefit would such a man in the death which marked his failure be to us? The loftier be the example which Jesus set, the greater becomes our sorrow at our failure to attain it. And the greater our hopelessness under the burden of sin. So we believe, don't we, that the miracles are part and parcel of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Without them, Jesus is no longer Jesus. What else might we expect, after all? You know, upon the arrival of the King of Kings that Matthew's been telling us about in his world and among his people, then the, sort of, the very sort of things we just read about. If the kind of miracles we've been studying in our evening series before, you know, pre-COVID, uh, were happening in the times of old, before Jesus' incarnation. We were studying the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, of Moses before that. How much more might we expect to see such miracles from the man who is himself the Son of God? But dear flock, the miracles are, are more, even more than the demonstration of the credentials of Jesus as the Son of God, aren't they? They are every bit that. Of course they are. But the miracles that we study together in Matthew are themselves vehicles for revealing the salvation that our Savior has come to bring. John Calvin, therefore, called the miracles sacramental signs. Sacramental signs. His point is that the miracles reveal in visible form the invisible grace of God. They've also been called enacted parables. Or as C.S. Lewis brilliantly observed, the miracles, in fact, are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Matthew makes it clear that this is his great interest in recording the healing miracles here to reveal Jesus Christ for who he is and who he had been prophesied to be. This is why Matthew quotes Isaiah 53, verse 4, in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here is the great prophecy of the coming of the servant of the Lord. And true to all we've seen in the narrative portions of, gospels of, of Matthew's gospel thus far, the royal birth, the angelic message, the Magi's visit with gifts fit for a king, the flight to Egypt, the baptism, the cosmic kingdom conflict in the wilderness, peppered all of it with specific prophecies fulfilled. Matthew is continuing now with the miracles to show us, not just to tell, but to show us the king's arrival in fulfillment of all the anticipation, all the royal expectations of the epoch of old. 
are now fulfilled in Jesus. And what are those expectations? What were they? Just this, that a Savior would come and save us from our sins. Why did Jesus come? You know, why? To impress us with his miraculous powers? Was it to make a name for himself? No. We know these are not his motives because Jesus himself tells the leper in verse 4. He says, don't tell anyone about this. Don't go spreading this around. Yeah, go to the priest. Do the ritual. Tell no one. But we already knew this, didn't we? Because we, we saw Jesus in the wilderness renouncing the temptation to take the throne of the world by performing miracles in his battle with Satan. Now, Jesus didn't come to show off. He didn't come just to cure people of physical diseases. If that were the case, how pathetic would be his mission in a sense, right? Because this man that he made clean from leprosy and, and, the, and this centurion's servant and even Peter's mother-in-law, though made well by Jesus on those remarkable days of their lives, eventually got sick again and died. Jesus came, why? To seek and to save the lost. That's why he came, to seek and to save the lost. The illnesses and diseases that Isaiah mentions in 53 verse 4 and that Matthew quotes in verse 17 refer primarily to spiritual infirmity, our sin, our guilt, which the Lord takes away by suffering in our place. Remember the words of John the Baptist upon seeing Jesus coming toward him. Remember what he said? He bursts out. Remember what he said? Behold what? The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. That's why he came. To take away the sins of the world. But doesn't Matthew not intend also to quote Isaiah literally too? Well, of course he does. You know, Matthew will point out to us that as the Lord heals illnesses and diseases, it is the demonstration that he is powerful to heal our spiritual ones as well. And vice versa. Indeed, is there not a very close connection between those two? My, how our bodies demonstrate in many ways the illnesses of our souls. And our souls struggle with the burdens these bodies are suffering under the terrible effects of the fall. You know, it's with our souls that we look into the mirror and view our bodies and survey some of us more than others at this point in our lives the effects of the fall and Matthew's not cherry to include those physical effects of sickness and even physical death in the errand of our Savior's incarnation crucifixion and resurrection because they too are part of the curse visited on human sin Physical healing, then, is a grand picture of salvation, which point I intend to develop, the Lord willing, next Lord's Day when we return to look in earnest at these three miracles. Maybe you are already far, far ahead of me. 
I expect several of you are on that point, having already begun to see, even as we read them this morning, how the light of the eternal and the spiritual and even physical healing is bursting through the seams, every seam of all three of these parables. All of this is, is packed into these miracles, which is why they're not just mere auxiliary uh, attachments to the teaching of Jesus in the gospel that we can take or leave, keep or cut out, as Jefferson did with scissors and knife, but rather integral, essential, part and parcel of the whole. There's not too much to say that our salvation our very salvation is inextricably bound up with these miracles. And as they go, so go our salvation. So goes our salvation. When wolves in Christian pulpits, when wolves mount Christian pulpits and, and shake their heads, you know, in incredulous condescension at the very idea that Jesus literally cleansed lepers of their leprosy or gave sight to the blind, or even raised the dead, they're leading the flock away from the Savior. They are leading the flock to the broad road that leads to destruction. Thomas Jefferson's Miracle-Free Bible, the Wall Street Journal reviewer points out, will do little to enhance the reputation of its editor. Just as Jefferson took apart his copies of the New Testament, so Smithsonian curators have taken apart his scrapbook in their ongoing conservation efforts. What they have found promises to reveal as much about Jefferson's body as his soul. The DNA evidence supplied by the hairs they discovered in the disbound manuscripts may settle the question to the degree that there is still reasonable doubt of his relationship with his slave, Sally Hemings, and of the paternity of her children. In the life of and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, Jefferson stripped from the message of Jesus not only the miracles, but with them any discussion of repentance and forgiveness. But, Mr. Manso reminds us, these might be the elements of Jesus' teaching that the sage of Monticello needed most. Well, those are exactly the elements of Jesus' teaching that Jefferson needed the most because they are exactly the elements of Jesus' ministry that we all need the most. Sinners that we are, every single one of us. And saved by the only one who cleanses us from, his, from our sins as surely as he cleansed this leper of his leprosy and by the very same power 
Not to put too fine a point on it, if Jesus did not cleanse this leprosy of his leper of his leprosy, then he will not and he cannot cleanse you of your sin. But the fact is, one day, early in Jesus' earthly ministry, a leper came to Jesus and got down on his knees before Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And one day you came to Jesus. And perhaps for some of you in the hearing of my voice right now, this will be the day that you come to Jesus to say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched you. And he said, I will be clean. And immediately you 